The scripture reading is Hebrews 9, 15 through 28. Hebrews 9, 15 through 28. Hear God's word. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it, made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every, every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have, had need, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you that we have the privilege of gathering together to look to him, to hear from him, and to be secure in Him. And as this is the case, Father, and as we have the privilege of living in this life for Jesus Christ, at the same time, we thank You 
that we may eagerly await his coming again. And so, bless us with this perspective, we pray, as we look into your word uh, for a short time this evening, and as uh, your people, we uh, trust you in him to work in our hearts that we might uh, truly, eagerly await his coming again, we pray, in the good name of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. Amen. Weddings are wonderful. Weddings are wonderful celebrations. And uh, when a young couple uh, has announced their engagement, uh, often in this congregation, uh, the uh, you have expressed your appreciation with a round of applause. And it's a very nice thing uh, when that occurs. And after the engagement, uh, the couple uh, makes plans and eagerly awaits their day. And uh, the parents eagerly await their day also. And then after that can go... You and I are the bride of Christ. We are betrothed to Christ. We are engaged to Him. And uh, in the biblical perspective, you and I are to eagerly await His coming again and the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the biblical model. This is the biblical perspective. And the text in Hebrews is taking us to that very place this evening. That we should eagerly await the life to come and Jesus Christ. In the meantime, you and I are called to live in this life for Jesus Christ. And as you and I live for Jesus Christ, you and I must have this perspective to eagerly await for Him. Yes, living in this life now for Him, but also eagerly awaiting His coming and the marriage supper of the Lamb. In our text... Uh, the uh, writer to the Hebrews is once again uh, laying before us uh, this Jesus Christ. And there's a special emphasis on uh, the sacrifice of Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ in the text. And he's, uh, the writer to the Hebrews has been building up uh, as we've been going along and uh, been talking about the... Uh, better covenant that Jesus Christ ushers in uh, based on better promises and offering a better hope. And as this is the case, he wants us to press forward and not turn back. This was uh, his perspective as he wrote uh, the book of Hebrews. 
And this ought to be our perspective this evening also. And so uh, we press forward and look eagerly uh, for this coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we enter the text proper in verse 15, we see that Jesus Christ settles the dispute that God the Father has with each one of us. And as He settles this dispute, we become His heirs. We become heirs of God. Verse 15 and following again. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that since the death, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. He is the mediator of a new covenant. And when the writer to the Hebrews tells us that he's the mediator of a new covenant, the writer to the Hebrews is telling us that God has a dispute with us and God, uh, Jesus Christ the Son is mediating in that dispute to settle the argument, to help settle the argument. And the problem is that God the Father does have something against you and me. It is sin. And He is not happy with us from the get-go because of our sin. He is angry, in fact. This is the truth of the matter. And often it is the case, is it not, that, well, we want to talk about the love of God. Well, this is true. We do want to talk about the love of God. But the starting point is the truth that you and I begin in this life as sinful, fallen creatures, and God has a problem with that. And therefore, Jesus Christ needs to come into the world to settle this dispute, as it were, as the mediator. And how does He do this? Uh, there is a redemption that takes place that has to do with the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant so that those who have been called may receive the promise of et an eternal inheritance. In other words, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is not a time out. This is what we like to do with our kids. Uh, send them to time out. You get to sit in the corner for an hour. That'll never cut the mustard with our God and Father. The wages of sin is death. And that needs to sink in. You and I are worthy of the penalty of death. And so, Jesus Christ needs to come into the world if He's going to... to uh, correct this problem that exists between the Father and us, He needs to come into the world and pay the penalty that you owe because of your sin. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ does. 
The first covenant is the covenant with Moses. And the centerpiece of that covenant is the Ten Commandments. And every time you and I violate one of those Ten Commandments, we sin. You sin and I sin. And the death penalty is due. And so Jesus Christ wonderfully comes into the world to pay that death penalty. And as a result, you and I become an heir of the good things of God, an heir of eternal life. And the writer to the Hebrews uses the analogy of a will in verses 16 and 17. The New American Standard Version translates it covenant, but the ESV uh, speaks of a will. And this is a good way to uh, speak of it. Uh, For where a will is, or where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Uh, Perhaps uh, your parents made a will. And uh, when they uh, pass away, in accordance with that will, uh, their property will be distributed to their heirs. And in accordance with that will, you will receive properties. And The analogy is that Jesus Christ is the one who made the will, and now when He dies, guess what? You receive the inheritance. That's the analogy. And this is how He acts as a mediator. You see, He handles the sin problem beautifully. He handles the sin problem. The first covenant now, uh, the first covenant demanded that uh, blood uh, was required for cleansing and for forgiveness. Uh, Verses 18 and following. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled uh, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to the law, one may also say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Even the first covenant required blood. And when Moses led the people out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai and went up to Mount Sinai and received the Word of God, received the covenant, he came down from the mountain and gathered the people together and he read the law, the covenant, to the people. And he offered sacrifice. And he took the blood from the sacrifice. And He sprinkled the blood on the people. 
He, he, he took hyssop and he dipped it in the blood and he, he sprinkled the blood on the people. And uh, the text here says, he also sprinkled the blood on the book that he read. The covenant. Thereby symbolically connecting God and the people. And the, the text goes on to say, in the same way, all of the tabernacle and all of the furniture of the tabernacle and the vessels of the tabernacle were cleansed in the same way with the sprinkling of blood. And in some cases, uh, there was the sprinkling of water. And in some cases, there was a sprinkling of water with blood. And this is why verse 22 says, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. Almost. Because there were some things that were cleansed with water. But the general principle at the end of verse 22 is, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is the general principle now with which the writer to the Hebrews is dealing and uh, uh, so he says then, therefore, verse 23, therefore, Christ, Christ entered heaven on the basis of his own blood on behalf of you and me. Uh, verse 23 and following. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. The earthly tent and tabernacle and place of worship was cleansed with animal blood. And it was on the basis of that animal blood that the priests went in and did their service in that ancient tabernacle. But that would never do for the actual entrance of Jesus Christ into heaven. It was on the basis of His own blood that He entered heaven. On the basis of the fact that He shed His blood on that tree, on that cross, and died on that cross. You see, this is the idea of the shedding of blood. Death. And you know that this is how it works. That if an individual is seriously injured or seriously wounded, you need to stop the bleeding as soon as possible. Because if they lose too much blood, what happens? They lose their lives. This is what happens. And so on the basis of His own shed blood... On the basis of His death, Jesus Christ entered heaven. 
And uh, this is what it means in verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy uh, uh, of the one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. For us on our behalf. In other words, Jesus Christ, on the basis of His death and His resurrection, entered into heaven and stood in the presence of the Father and said, Father, I have completed the work You sent Me into the world to accomplish. You promised Me that if I would enter into the world and do your will, which included dying on a cross to pay the penalty due to the sins for my people, you would give me those people as a gift. And I have a Accomplish that work, Father. And I stand before you on behalf of those people for whom I died. I died. I died for Thomas Leonard. I died. For Elizabeth Ferris. I died for Pam Filson and for Dean Filson. I died for Russ Pulliam. I died for Jim Long and for Chance Petty and for Aaron Murray and for Julie Mauser. Father, And I'm here on their behalf. And so, this great work of Jesus Christ put away all sin at the end of the ages. Verses 25 and 26. Nor was it that He would offer Himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not His own. Otherwise, He would have needed to to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, but now at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin, to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The the writer to the Hebrews is again emphasizing this fact that it's a once-for-all sacrifice. The high priest went into the uh, uh, most holy place with the blood of bulls and goats, 
with an offering for Himself and then with an offering for the people. And if Jesus Christ had been sent into the world to offer sacrifices often for the sins of the people, He would have had to start at the beginning of the world to often offer sacrifices because sin began right there at the beginning in the garden. But this is not why He was sent. He was sent, He was manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. To once for all put away sin. To definitively deal with your sin and with my sin. And what this means, friends, is this. That within your life, sin no longer reigns. Sin remains. Sin is still there, but it is not the king. It is not the ruler. Sin no longer reigns. And if you and I would get that through our beanie brains... I've said this before. I used to tease my daughters. If you'd get those two little brain cells together that exist between your ears, you might make yourself something. If you get it straight in your head that Jesus Christ came into the world to deal definitively with sin once for all so that sin no longer reigns. It is no longer the reigning principle in the life of the Christian. It remains. It's still there. And so you need to think about it in that way. That this is what Jesus Christ has actually done by the sacrifice of Himself. And so now what happens? Now, having died, having been buried, having been raised again from the dead, having ascended up into heaven, He sits as King of kings and Lord of lords. And having won the victory at the cross, He's in a mop-up operation. And the analogy that's so often used is the analogy of the Second World War where Hitler's Nazi army army was defeated and on the run. But it took a while for the mop-up operation to take place because there were lots of pockets of resistance that still existed. And Jesus Christ is presently now in that mop-up operation. 
And He's preparing to come again in glory. Verses 27 and 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. He will come again. And it's not for the purpose of dealing with sin because He's already definitively dealt with sin. He's going to come back again for salvation for final, triumphant salvation. And when He comes back again, the dead will be raised incorruptible. The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. And this mortal will put on immortality. And you and I will be fit for a new life in a new realm. In a spiritual realm with spiritual bodies that are fit for heaven. That's the salvation that awaits you and me. Yes, we have been saved by the work of Jesus Christ. And we are in the process, you may say, of being saved because we're being changed daily, more and more, by the grace of God into the image of Jesus Christ. And we shall be saved when Christ comes a second time in glory. And this is why the text ends in this way. Let me read verse 28 again. So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. For those who eagerly Await Him. And part of the idea is this, friends, that this sense of eagerly awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is part and parcel with the fact that our sins have been forgiven and Jesus Christ has done a wonderful work in our lives. And as the Apostle Paul promises us, that which He has begun in us, He will complete until the last day. He will do it. And He's in that process now. 
And part of your understanding and my understanding of this work of Jesus Christ is eagerly awaiting Him. It's too bad the dispensationalists and the premillennialists seem to have have bought the whole store with regards to eager expectation with regard to the second coming. And I remember very well a friend of mine who has now gone to be with the Lord and was a post-millennialist and wanted dearly for me to become a post-millennialist. And I asked him one day, I said, Harry, how long is it going to be for this millennium to play out? And he says, I think, I think it was Gary North who said it may be 10,000 years. I said, Harry, I don't have that kind of time. And it was kind of a joke. But with an eager expectation, you see. It makes all the difference in the world. And so you and I are to live in this world for Jesus Christ with an eager expectation for His coming again. Sticks in my mind like it was yesterday when our middle daughter was married. And as is often the case, uh, pictures are now taken before the wedding ceremony. And uh, uh, this is what uh, my daughter and our prospective son-in-law decided to do. And I remember walking into the church auditorium with Russ and he saw Denise up on the platform and it was just like he gasped and he said, she's beautiful. Friends, this is exactly what Jesus Christ says about you, His bride. You're beautiful. Because the sin problem has been taken away. And in the end, when Jesus Christ comes a second time in glory and you're raised again, as the psalmist says, in beautiful and holy robes will worship the King, our Jesus Christ. And so the point is simple, isn't it? Live for Jesus now and eagerly await His coming 
and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You're so good to us, better than we deserve. And we pray that we might be ones who do eagerly await You. Bless us with this sense of heart. And as this is the case, cause us more fully to live for You in this life with this expectation, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.